Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the architecture program curator here at the RA, and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce this evening event, which is the second, the second and last uh, debate as part of the series that the architecture department has organized and inspired, uh, inspired by the Dali Duchamp exhibition, which is now open in the main galleries. And if you have not visited, I really encourage you to visit it until, which, and will be open until the 3rd of January. In this series of, of two events, we have explored how architecture relates with some of the principles served by the work of Salvador Dali and Marcel Duchamp, and that was the reason of the extraordinary relationship between these two artists. Last Monday, uh, we had our first event uh, in this series. We focused on eroticism and investigated how sensuality, uh, sexuality, and voyeurism have been uh, and still are uh, a source of inspiration for architects from Ledoux to Le Corbusier to Bernard Schumi or Nayeko, who presented his work here, as well as it was for, for Dali and Duchamp. Today, we are focusing on a different, on a different topic, a different resource, used by, also by Dali and Duchamp, which is the allegory. We were used by these two artists to create the rich, uh, fictional, dreamlike imagery that we all know them for. In this debate, we will discuss how this approach has also been used by architects to reveal the contradictory nature of the world and to question reality itself. Before introducing our chair this evening, uh, just a couple of quick notes. First one, to thank the architecture program supporter, the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture, and our lead program supporter, Taki Ceramics. Uh, also, I would like to encourage you to visit our website, uh, royalacademy.org.uk slash architecture, to know a little bit more about what we do uh, and what is the architecture offer. Now at the Royal Academy, our upcoming events, including a very exciting uh, keynote lecture by American architect Todd Williams and Billy Tsin, who have been recently commissioned by Obama to design his uh, foundation, but also about our very exciting program for next year, uh, coinciding with the 250th anniversary of the Royal Academy. Now, uh, without, the, without further ado, uh, I'm going to introduce to our speaker, our chair, sorry. Neil Hophouse is an art collector and writer on architectural and curatorial issues. He's currently trustee of Drawing Matter and has served as trustee of many different institutions, uh, including the Holborn Museum in Bath, uh, the Development Trust of the National Museum of Liverpool, the Canadian Centre for Architecture, the Campaign for Museums, and the Sir John Sons Museum. He was also formerly uh, governor of the London School of Economics and chair of the advisory board for the LSE Cities Programme. Now, without further delay, please give a warm welcome to Neil Hophouse. Peter Wilson and I had a brief conversation about how uneasy he was with the idea of fictions uh, as part of the title for this uh, uh, evening. And I thought I would kind of liberate all the speakers by saying, just reminding them that uh, all architectural drawings are, in a certain sense, fakes. Um, that they depend on the audience accepting a set of conventions. Um, and um, in, in a way, the, the, the more conventional 
the more conventions, the more conventional, the harder they try to be real, the more fake that they are. So uh, that, uh, I hope that that makes you then less... Gonzalo is looking at me very hostilely. But I... Um, um, the... the um, So, um, what I, I hope we're going to do is, is challenge, uh, keep in mind that, we, that those myths need to be um, challenged, and also think about what it means, what, looking at these drawings, which declare themselves as, uh, as in a certain way, um, that expose the myth of architectural drawings, um, which all three of our speakers tonight uh, uh, it's a subject that all three of our speakers tonight are interested in. What that actually means, also what that asks of us as an audience in terms of the way we respond to an architectural image that uh, we have to confront as unreal in a, in a certain way. Um, the other thing I was going to say, I'm certain people who know me well have heard me say it before, and I apologize. Um, but uh, there is a sense in which um, a good designer with a good idea is always frustrated by the conventions and modes of representation that are available to them at that time. So there's a, uh, and you know, this is true of. Uh, Michelangelo or Alvaro Caesar or Mies looking at uh, collage as a medium. It's a palpable um, uh, uh, frustration which actually leads to this very curious situation where, uh, uh, it sounds a bit trite, where a good drawing, where a good building produces a good drawing very often. Um, and it's that that I'd like to keep that in mind as we go through the evening. I think that um, the, the other point that is important with our three speakers, that, that it's a kind of intergenerational, transgenerational mix, which kind of covers, I mean, all three of you were working in, or, or were aware of a period where actually drawing was pretty much the only thing that architects did. Um, and then confronted this moment where nobody drew. Um, and now we're looking at this sort of avalanche of new conventions and new modes that is sort of coming down, the, uh, uh, coming uh, towards us. So that actually the problem is a different one. There's actually so much, there are so many media there uh, to represent and develop ideas. Um, and uh in terms of of the response of architects but also the response response of students i think there's a huge discussion that i would love to try and have um later in the in the evening um i have got all the um speakers to agree that, that i won't recite their distinguished um, uh, biographies in in each case, um, partly because I think it would partly because it's here in the program, but also because um, I'd love to just get on with the discussion. the The format is that uh, 
Peter Wilson will speak, followed by Niels Villa, followed by Sam Jacob. Um, uh, 12 minutes each, Gonzalo is going to ring a bell or something when that happens. We'll, um, we'll then have uh, a few minutes of general discussions, some responses from the, the, the floor, and then open the, the um, discussion up to everybody if there are any questions. So I'm going to hand over to um, Peter now. As you have heard, there are different generations here. I guess I'm the grandfather. Um, I'm a survivor of the generation of paper architecture, which means I came into the architectural world where architecture was entirely on paper. I think one has to confess that, or I find myself more often these days being questioned by students about the old days. And as a dinosaur who's still alive, it's still somewhat alive in my memory as well. Um, I would. I have another problem. I do have a problem with the title fictions. I mean, I prefer the word from Borges, counterfactual histories. Um, counterfactual histories. I think. Um, are paths which could have been taken if things did not eventuate as they happened to have. Um, I began my career with a series of, of drawings which were counterfactual histories. It's something I still do. This image you've been looking at for the last 10 minutes and probably wondering what on earth is that. It's one of my counterfactual histories. When I give you the title, I hope all will come clear. The title is... Um, neoliberal abstractions were less than welcome in Rajasthan. Um, I think there is a point where all architecture is, is, is a, a construct, a fiction. I, 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 we were a little bit nonplussed by the way we, we, we were tonight meant to link to Dali and Duchamp. There is, of course, a very direct link between an, an architect and Duchamp. I'm talking about the drawing on the right by Jean-Jacques Lecoeur, which is here, this is a thesis from um, Philippe Dubois, that um, the only person who looked at the drawings of Lecoeur in the Bibliothèque Nationale for almost 100 years was Marcel Duchamp. And the drawings of Lecoeur, or the, the text of Lecoeur, are, are very curious for architectural historians. There's lots of crossings out. It's normally interpreted that he did the drawings before the revolution, and then after the revolution he crossed out King and wrote The People. But um, the, the, the theory implied by Philippe Dubois is that the crossings out were possibly Marcel Duchamp, who actually, uh, actually the, um, the over of Le Coeur is actually a work of Duchamp's, which I think feeds wonderfully into the idea of fictions. On the, on the left, you see Duchamp himself with his glider. Also, I think the question here is that it's a question of corporality, the, f the female figure on the left, the male figure on the right, and a question of materiality, of, of whether the building is of stone or of glass. Um, the question of materiality, this is one of my early drawings, well, actually not so early, 1980s. It's not, a f it's not a counterfactual history, it's a history which actually happened. It's a drawing I did when I found a photograph of the face of the Statue of Liberty, which was constructed in Paris and transported across the Atlantic for him to be mounted on this giant steel structure in front of New York. Um, what interested me most was this, this overlap between architecture and figuration, although this giant frame. I think the architectural invention here is purely the supports, 
but there are some figurative references in the background. You'll recognize the um, giant heads, or I think it's a hand, there's a hand from the, from the historic museum in Rome in the background. I want to follow up this, in my short talk, this theme of figuration. Um, there, you see, follow up to, um, follow up to the Statue of Liberty, a smiling face. This is a recent project of our office. So I don't want to tonight to talk about paper architecture. I want to talk about the materiality of architecture. This, um, I think, responsibility of the architect to place things in the public realm, a sort of a sort of social contract, things which, which people will encounter and will in, interact with. This is a fragment of a recent project of Bollas and Wilson. It happens to be a theatre and it happens to be in Albania. This is more of it. Theatres traditionally have on their facade a comic and a tragic mask. Oh, I forgot to say that the face of liberty crossing the Atlantic is a mask, and I think today it would be better called the mask of liberty, being in the America of today. Um, this is the comic mask on our theatre in Korcha in Albania. It's Im embossed or impressed into a very material cube of black stone. It has, if you look very closely, it has lights as ears. The Albanians who are not so good at reading my hand-drawn hand drawing, it was built from hand-drawn drawings, I must say, from sketches. The Albanians first mounted the lights on the face. There was one in the, the, the moustache position, and he looked like a happy Hitler. This is the whole theatre facade. It's actually a revamp of a theatre given to the Albanians um, under communism from Moscow. I mean, this is politically not correct in Albania these days. They asked us to redo the theatre. We did the interiors with Albanian architects. And we also re-scripted the facade. On the left you see the tragic mask, black, very grim. Scares the local children, I hope. And in the middle there are 140 faces which we call the audience. They're made in terracotta. And I think for me, in this project, if you saw it on paper, you would say, this, this, is a, this is a fiction, this is impossible. But I think the point of architecture for me is to find the, the cracks where one can insert things like this, which are way, way outside the conventions of architectural practice. Um, closer with people on the pavement, one of them is the mayor. A tragic mask with a shadow from a campanile, which we also built in Korcha in Albania. And the audience. The audience are made from terracotta. They're 80 centimeters high. And for me, this, this materiality is... I, 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 I like the idea of fictive materiality. And these were made by an Albanian potter. And he made 140 different characters. There am I in his studio, and his pottery with one of them. This is basically all I want to say about architectural fictions, that I think, or actually my, my problem with fictions is that fiction, fictions and fact are a duality, it's of either or. And I think I would be much happier if we were to talk about them as, not as fictions, but as, um, or use the Lacanian trilogy, the real, the imaginary, and the symbolic. I think this would be much more useful for conversation. Thank you very much. Well, the first thing to say is thank you for inviting me. Um, 
I'm just going to talk about uh, some very small bits of a project that I've been doing for the last 20 years called the Communicating Vessels Project. And I wanted, I originally started off wanting to make a, a contribution to the long project, the sort of work that Mike Webb has done with Temple Island or that Ben Nicholson has done with the Appliance House or um, Daniel Lieberskin's first three or four pieces. Um, and I love that long project idea. So um, it's called Communicating Vessels. And the bit I'm going to focus on is some very, uh, a few drawings of the Longhouse, which is the kind of centerpiece of that collection. Um, it's now of about a thousand drawings and thousands of words of uh, purple prose. So the Communicating Vessels Island is in a place called uh, Fordwich, which is about two and a half miles outside Canterbury, where I was brought up. Um, I've never been on the island. It's where the River Stour forks for a moment, and it's supposed to be one of the smallest inhabited islands in the UK. And so this is a kind of notional site plan. So it's a notional site, really. It's a kind of psychogeographic site. It's kind of half there and half not there. And you can see the light of God shining down the drawing. And there's a series of vistas. And it's a landscape, really. And it's, uh, the, the narrative behind it is there's, there's a mad surrealist professor who's, who kind of explores their, uh, the, the surrealist lexicon and makes these sculptures in the garden and makes a house and makes various all sorts of things, some of which I'll show you. Um, and it's a very complex, reflexive landscape that's, that uses a variety of technologies, some virtual and some synthetic and biological, um, to, to drive its uh, various pieces. So there are vistas, um, there are uh, wheelbarrows with expanding bread, there are points of view, there are parallaxes, um, all choreographed over time, and uh, chance is choreographed as well. The garden is presided over by a baroness, and you can see her in the uh, top right-hand corner, and there's a, a, the baroness is based on Baroness um, Elsa Freytag von Lorenhoven, who at one, side, one time had a, a studio next to Marcel Duchamp in New York. And she was a kind of proto-punk. She used to uh, dye her head purple, um, wear bits of found jewellery that she would make, um, and often got arrested in New York in 1917. Um, she, she didn't wash much and smelt quite bad. Um, but she has this representation of her. Um, she has electromagnetic filaments, again, sort of honed as an idea from some of the bits of the, the large Duchamp's large glass. And these tell her what's happening on the island. So here you see the wheelbarrow with expanding bread. You see references to some of... Dali's uh, semiotics, the bread in Dali stands for stupidity, and you also see uh, the Hector Guimar um, Paris Metro lights, which Dali um, confused in his paranoid critical method with a praying mantis. Um, there's genetic gazebos that harvest the DNA of um, prehistoric insects caught in amber, and that becomes planting plans for the vista. Um, the project is very uh, inspired by Dali and Duchamp, um, and here we see the large glass and the various terrains, the top and upper terrain of the bride, a four-dimensional space, and the bottom domain, uh, the domain of the bachelors, a three-dimensional 
masculine space. And I wanted, when I, I got to, I designed a lot of things in the garden. And a couple of years ago, I decided that it was important to, to do the professor's house and to try and define what exactly that might be. And the way I work is I draw to discover. I don't draw things I already know. So the drawings I'm about to show you are discovery drawings. So the house is split along its central axis. It's got some kinds of wings and a spike on the end. Um, and there you see a drawing where it starts to quote Duchamp's um, uh, large glass. But I wanted a half that was kind of Francis Bacon-y, full of lust and death and blood, and another half that was kind of more Henry Morey, sort of uh, womick and uh, comforting. And that develops into a series of plans, um, kind of time-based plans. I also wanted to evoke um, and explore through the drawings augmented and mixed realities and ghosts and memories and the semiotics of that. And there's a series of ghosts that come through the, the plan at certain points. There's a Minotaur, there's Hecate, um, the Greek goddess of um, crossroads and all sorts of things. And I'll show you some of those. So it's about choreographing those movements. There is another entity behind this, which is called the chicken computer, which is a, a kind of, uh, of uh, marvellous computer, analogue computer controlled by chickens that starts to map out where things are relative to other things. Um, but the, the project started with a door. I just wanted to draw a door. So I've got no plan at this point. I'm just drawing a door. And it's a kind of inverted angel door. Cast bronze, I think. There are, inside the house, there are nudes, kind of electric nudes descending the staircase. Um, there you see another version of that. Starting to explore the ex interiors. The, the project's not completed. Then it's starting to look through the eyes of various um, the windows, both looking into the house and looking out. And here we see a kind of asphalt gargoyle, vomiting asphalt, through the, uh, looking from the outside in, in that case. So it starts to talk about some of the elements that make up the house. This is Hikati, just about to come through the window. So the sculptures are kind of augmented in mixed reality. So that when I draw, I try to speculate about technologies and let the drawing and the rereading of the drawing inspire the thoughts that I then write about in terms of the narrative of the project. Um, the other key piece of the project is uh, there's the professor um, and there's the boy. And the boy is a kind of uh, poorly informed narrator who discovers various things in the house and in the garden and then reports back on them, um, but totally wrongly. Um, there are boulevards of mannequins in the house, uh, reference to the 1938 Surrealist Exhibition in Paris. There is a boxing match as well in a, in a vitrine, which is also another quote back to the missing bit of the large glass, the boxing match. And the plan evolves and changes over time. And there's a, a, a composite drawing, really, of... I wanted the house to sense itself and to sense its terrain and then to reconfigure itself. So there's, on one side, the white side is a, is a more accurate representation of the actual built house, if you like, if I'm imagining it. And the other side, the golden side, is the way the, the house starts to 
scan itself and scan its terrain and can scan other pieces. Um, and it can even scan older drawings as well. And these become input data, space-time vectors, in the reconfiguration of the house at Bonner at every day, um, at dusk and, and dawn. So I think I'm going to stop there. That's probably my 12 minutes, isn't it? Hello, hello. Um, I guess I'm a little bit easier with the term fiction, um, but, but maybe because uh, I think when I'm thinking of fictions, I'm often thinking of the way in which fictions are a way of, of actually making things seem real. Um, so it's a short talk about architectural drawings and how they both depict and invent the world. And I suppose it's also about the strange quality that architectural drawings have, which is agency, not just a way of seeing, but also a way of constructing the world. Um, that I guess something that's really weird about architectural drawings is they're both a form of representation, but also a kind of instruction too. They're things which operate in at least two ways simultaneously, both kinds of maps and territories. And um, I'm going to show different kinds of drawings. This is a set of drawings um, called A1, A2, A3, A4, A5. And there are a set of drawings which are on pieces of A1, A2, A3, A4, A5 pieces of paper, but they're also of the road system. So A1 has a picture of the A1, A2 has a picture of the A2, A3, etc, etc. So you're never quite sure if you're looking, the title refers to the paper or to the thing that's depicted. And in some senses, it's a drawing which talks about systems and rules and conventions. And that, of course, is something which architectural drawings also have. And in some ways, I think like Neil was suggesting in the beginning, the conventions of architectural drawings, the very familiar conventions, are um, very strict languages, they're very strange languages, they take sometimes quite a long time to learn and they bamboozle people who don't understand that language. But if you think of the thing, that the system before there's anything drawn, it's already a drawing of something. It's a drawing of that way of thinking about space or the world or whatever it might be. So before anything's drawn, it is something. And I'll talk a little bit about perspective working on an exhibition, beginning to work on an exhibition, so I'm trying to figure out, I don't know, thoughts around the idea of perspective. But what the first one is the tyranny of perspective, like the horrible feeling of the vanishing point, that everything comes from it or everything disappears into it. Um, and, of course, it's a thing which we often use to you know, do drawings of buildings that describe it, and we can show it to someone, and everyone goes, oh, yeah, that, look, that will be a nice building. Um, there's the seminal essay, Panofsky, Perspective as Symbolic Form, that suggests, though, that perspective is not just a natural way of drawing. In fact, it's a thing which could only be conceived of at a particular moment in time. And that moment is the Renaissance, when a certain idea of a universal God allows you to think of the infinite, which allows you then to have the vanishing point. And before that, it was impossible to conceive of perspective. Um, so you could say, in that way of looking at it, perspective is a concept as much as it is a way of drawing. But it does stand in for reality for us often. Um, and in religious and mercantile Florence, Brunelleschi demonstrated linear perspective for the first time with his 
experiment with the Florentine baptistry, which again you could say, in a circumstance where people were very concerned about measuring things in their mercantile manner, and also religion in a kind of omnipresent manner. Um, so these two concepts coincide but create a system which we often assume to be a form of depiction of reality. Of course, it's far from real. And in fact, that fiction is a kind of trap. And you see in these kind of diagrams that teach you how to draw perspective, especially those Renaissance uh, uh, manuals, you see all these guys wandering around who are sort of blinkered. All they can see are these cones of vision. And it seems like a kind of tragedy that they can't see the world or they can see are these squares. Um, so that operating within that fiction is a kind of trap. Mike Webb's Temple Island, Neil mentioned this. And this is a project which, in one sense, is about the kind of tyranny of the, of the scopic regime of perspective, where things become absolutely distorted by the means of drawing itself. So things become like kind of like broken up as if they're being sucked into a black hole or crossing the event horizon. So the thing which is supposed to show you you know, designed to show the real world, suddenly it becomes a depiction of something entirely abstract. Um, you could say there's something about the weirdness of perspective in a lot of Dali painting as well. First days of spring here, this is sort of kind of generic, abstract, graphic plane with objects in it. Um, not a drawing of the real world at all, but perhaps more of a drawing of a kind of state of mind or a kind of, of a system of representation. And just a quick aside, this is OMA's sort of 80s drawing, Rotterdam Summation. And it's hard to think of this drawing without thinking of it in relation to this Dali painting, if only because of the colour scheme, if only because of the kind of graphic absence and the objects within that space. But we could also think of this drawing containing other uh, kind of stories as well. This is the kind of picture of Rotterdam, the origin myth of Ome, flattened after the Second World War. You can see objects in space, but it also contains a future, which is very late Ome project de Rotterdam, um, which appears kind of in this drawing. So it's a drawing which speculates on a past and a future, and is a kind of drawing which has both of those as its content, but also a kind of quality of agency, both a way of seeing and a way of making, you could say. And I suppose that's part of the kind of drawing I'm sometimes interested in, which is sort of drawings which revel in the abstraction of drawing systems, which talk about histories of places and ways of understanding places, um, talk about a kind of uh, sort of graphic archaeology, you could say, a way of drawing to understand. But back to perspective for a second. So Alberti describes in his sort of uh, instruction of how to draw perspectives, he calls the picture plane an open window. So the picture plane is like a window that you're looking through into another world. <coughs> and maybe this is one way we could understand Duchamp's large glass, that it is literally a window. The window is not a way of seeing into something. It becomes the surface where the drawing or the act of representation occurs. Or fresh window, where the window becomes the subject of representation too. An idea that uh, we've explored in this series of um, screen prints, one-to-one -one windows that you can hang on your wall. There's a picture of a window which kind of acts like a window itself. So if 
perspective emerges at a particular moment in time, there's obviously other moments in time and other ways of drawing. And you know, one uh, kind of particularly surrealist version um, might be these um, uh, exquisite corpses, which are in this case made out of fragments of mass media. So they're kind of cut out of printed media, things which couldn't have been made before there was loads of printed stuff. So taking things which made sense, assembling them to make alternate, alternative realities, you could say. But working with the media of that moment, with kind of mass printed communication stuff. And I want to show this. This is in the Drawing Matter collection. It's the kind of magic uh, treasure trove of uh, uh, Super Studios, like, source. The, the place where they kept all the torn pages of magazines, which all of those collages came out of. And what it reveals, of course, is they were working with that stuff. Like, you know, in the 60s and early 70s, the Super Studio, Archogram and others were, were chopping up bits of magazines, the things which were the kind of currency of communication in that age. And I suppose these kinds of drawings are similar. These are drawings I've made which are kind of determinants of Prince Charles's watercolours. And I thought it was too happy an accident to come across Prince Charles landscapes watercolour. I mean, it's an invitation, really, isn't it? Um, and so these big, these interventions, the big black shapes, I suppose, are, you know, I think you could read many things into them, but certainly they're a kind of intervention into a certain nostalgic view of English landscape, ideas of power, so on and so forth. Interruptions of a visions of Britain, in other words. Um, but something I've been thinking about a lot is what it means to make drawings now in an age which you could call the post-digital, that's to say, an age where we've kind of got over the excitement of digital tools. So let's say the drawing packages, which, you know, AutoCADs, microstations, rhinos, all of those things which allow you to do incredibly complicated shapes and so on. I like to think of the ways in which they set up the space of the drawing, so the graphic kind of uh, worlds which they create. This is the opening screen of SketchUp, which in some ways seems a little bit like those very early diagrams of perspective. Seems a little bit Dali in a strange way. There's a kind of hipsterish girl hanging around in this blank space with the axes, the only, her only company. Um, but essentially, these applications have a sort of super-clarified or super-essentialized way of thinking about what space is. Within them, you cannot do a Mike Webb, for example. You cannot alter the perspective to such a point as the whole thing falls apart. Instead, they present particular visions of how you're supposed to make a drawing. The rules and the system become so clear that you can only operate within them. Um, and of course, people have done incredible things within those worlds. I'm not so interested in that. I'm more interested in what it means to make drawings in a world where we live through and on screen so much, when we can have any image called up to us in microseconds. We can have the history of art, the history of architectural representation of various resolutions, not necessarily good, there. And it's also the place that we make drawings, and it's also the place that we see the world. So much of the information that we see comes through the same place that we draw. So, it's not like a drawing board used to be, which is a separate space. This is the same place that your news comes in through or your, you know, hanging out with friends happens on and so on. I think this is really profound and I think it's a really 
big change in our relationships images and I think that means that the drawings we make are bound to be different just as they were in the Renaissance. Um, I'm, I think Photoshop is the most profound tool for thinking about the possibilities of architecture, not Rhino or MicroStation or whatever. Um, and it allows us to work in a way which is sure collage, but it's so sophisticated that it's absolutely seamless. It allows us to do things like this. This is Philip Johnson's glass house, but placed into the painting, which is normally inside the glass house, so a kind of reversal of its arrangement. It's also something, this idea has been something which has been driving a lot of the studios that I've been teaching at the AA, at Yale, and at um, UIC in Chicago. Often about, I guess, bringing together very different kinds of relationships. This is a kind of early example. Peter is actually strangely similar in a way. This you may recognize as John Haydock's wall house, but drawn in the manner of a Persian miniature. Uh, this, a uh, uh, a fat project, the St. Lucas Art Academy, drawn in the manner of um, Piranesi. Another fat project, the, the Herlekite in Rotterdam, drawn as if it was Mike Webb and Temple Island. Uh, other kinds of combinations, James Sterling's Flory Building, remade through the spatial logic of the gardens of Versailles. Or kind of taking on that weird graphic space of early Zaha paintings and kind of reappropriating that for other means. A lot of this is about taking on graphic um, uh, kind of styles, but it's also about taking on uh, other kinds of space. And also about dissolving, in some sense, the kind of idea of authorship which you get with the, you know, the graphic hand. These are drawings which are made by people who could make a Zaha-esque drawing on Tuesday and make a, um, a, 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 um, a non-Zahara-esque drawing on Wednesday, which I think is also interesting. Um, or drawings like this. This is kind of well, multiple references. And in some sense, it's not perhaps so important that the references are declared. It's, it's just that they're part of the ingredients in the way of making these kinds of post-digital drawings. In fact, it might even mean that we can digitally occupy forms of representation of other eras. So here, Photoshop takes on the world of collage of um, Super Studio. Back to something slightly less technological. Um, I think, in essence, what I'm trying to say is that all architectural drawings are systems, and we should understand them as such and work with them and against them as such to not end up like those guys in, with their conical vision. Um, that those systems are designed to create realities and a plan is something we should believe. Um, but they're also the systems which we can degrade and make them perform in different ways. And in doing that, we might begin to understand the power of the system as much as what it is we're drawing. So I'd argue first that the representational system is a site of representational operation and to intervene in that system uh, is as important as to follow its logics. Um, the architectural drawings should be thought of as things with agency, never as illustrations. Because, in reality, perhaps, that distinction that we have between representation and building 
is perhaps much smaller than we normally think that it is. Perhaps all forms of architecture, whether, it draw, whether it's drawing, model, building, should be understood as forms of representation and therefore much more interchangeable. And there's much more that we could learn from the act of representation in terms of building and vice versa than we often admit. Thanks. What I would love to do is ask uh, to pick up on Sam's last observation about where the situs of architecture really is. Well, I've always thought that, um, but I would do. Um, uh, I spent on and off about 10 years in practice and was uh, mainly exceptionally bored by it. Um, and so I've always drawn, and for me, the main site of architecture is the drawing. And I know that's quite difficult for a lot of people to stomach. Um, but um, it's, it, to me, it's the kind of premium materia of, of architecture and, and absolutely valuable. I think I have a problem with this claiming of authority for, for one particular moment in architecture. I have quite a few problems, actually. I have a problem with literacy as well. It seems that we have to all be incredibly literate to be able to operate in architecture these days. We have to have a whole encyclopedia in our heads of other people's work to be able to move forward. I think that's a, that's a point in history where when something new appears at that moment, it really is interesting. Um, I have a problem of ways of understanding as well. Because I think the question is, and who, who can read these products? And who is the audience? Sam, do you want to follow up on this? I mean, I'm, I think I'm not suggesting that the architecture resides in any one thing, but possibly between the things. Well, I've, I've had a long interest in architecture as representation. And those of you who know Fat's work, it was often about things which were almost kind of buildings which almost looked like drawn, well, like children's drawings almost, like so graphic in their, in their kind of materiality. So I, I mean, I, I think for me, the, the drawing is a thing with agency. It's a place where ideas emerge, but equally... Um, and increasingly, for me, I would say it's also the other way around. That, in fact, thinking of all of these forms of kind of making architecture, all of these states of architecture, I think is 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 really productive. That they're all forms of representation, whether it's built forever, or whether it's a drawing, or whether it's an installation which lasts a couple of days. Even that each of these things are architecture, and there's nothing. There's no kind of problem with any of them kind of uh, kind of coexisting I would say and they all have things which they can teach each other and things that they can learn from each other I mean Neil do you have an imagined audience or will the uh, island ever be built uh, no the island won't ever be built um, the um, the really the drawings as I said is uh, I do them so that I can understand the possibilities of technologies and the possibilities of architectural representation. Um, so really, the audience is selfishly me. I do like it when other people like them, but they may see other things in them that I didn't intend, and that's great, and I enjoy that. But there's no explicit didactic... No, apart from... Uh, it's almost like a diary, you know. It's, it sort of illustrates where I've been, uh, both visually and... 
um, theoretically and his historically and uh, it's about exploring my pantheon I guess it's a sort of personal wonder camera. But Peter did, did it change for you I mean I remember as a student just looking at your drawings I don't know how many hours gazing at sort of submarines that have been stretched on photocopiers and they were so incredible to to think about but obviously you're hand stretching yeah Oh, no, of course. It wasn't a photocopy. No machine involved. Oh, really? Yes. Ooh, it he, really he upset Hayden, and, he, and he, he, he didn't speak to me after that. <laughs> when you were making things like that, did, uh, to, compared to when you're making work now, has your idea of audience changed? My idea of audience changed radically when we built our first building. And for, for me, that was an absolute revelation that you do something which is maybe from our side as architects and as experts is intellectually loaded with all sorts of references. You put it out there and all sorts of people see it and, and they don't get the references. They simply, they simply encounter it and they, and they experience it physically as well. And I think that's, if one only talks about drawings, one's missing that, that physical negotiation of matter which architecture can offer. And I have to ask in relation to the theatre in Albania, was it a liberation that layers and layers of uh, technical practice were simply elided by... Um, I, I mean, it, it felt like drawing at whole scale. I mean, it felt like drawing at one-to-one. Well, and the, the, the stuff in Albania is for me enormously liberating because they can't afford to pay us a proper fee. So I tell them, for, for that amount of money that you can pay, you only get a hand drawing. And they say, what, a hand drawing, no renderings? But we have young Albanians who do renderings from, from my hand drawings. And I've been on site, this is a story we've discussed a few times today, I've been on site in Albania where the builders have 30 huge renderings by the Albanian architects. And they're trying to build them, and it's completely bonkers. And then I come on site, the man who did the, the, the initial sketch, and, and the builders ask me, how does this wall meet that ceiling? So I, I draw on the wall with a pencil. And for me, it's, I, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. I, I'm, I'm talking to simple people here who simply, simply have to implement something. But, and I think there's a, the, the question of reception is not simply a matter of translating from idea to material. It's a question of, of, of uh, it, it's a spatial question. Like this room is, is an extraordinary room. It, it, it has an intellectual history, which you told me before. And the room where, where Darwin first presented his Origin of Species. So you should all feel elevated in the audience now. To, um, I, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm really worried that these dimensions of architecture are being forgotten or are being eclipsed. By by the shift in the profession or the shifts in I think the pedagogy or the the profession has done its out of itself out of a job because it's become so systematized that it that it's banal, and I think and what everybody here is working at is a a rescripting of architecture absolutely necessary. But the next question is how to throw that out there, how to launch it into a public realm. I wonder if that isn't the moment to uh, throw this open to the audience. Does anybody have... Um, go, go, go right for it. Yeah, please do. Yeah, well, you opened up by asking um, them what is the site um, of architecture, which I find uh, very interesting. And it seemed like through 
what you all were talking about. It, it seems like that side seems to be either human imagination or the mind. That's either your minds or the minds of the people that is experiencing uh, this. And uh, in the tone that the discussion was taking now, whereas it seemed like um, architecture is now more constrained or uh, we have more issues because it's so systematized and so on, yet we have other realms opening up, such as virtual realms, where perhaps I wonder if um, this architecture of the imagination uh, or architecture uh, in this operating in a much more free realm will have much greater opportunities. And maybe for young people like us starting, we might see a future of practice in there rather than in the physical world. I think so. I'm always positive. I mean, in the sense that architects have always been negative, you know, yeah, right. Vitruvius <laughs> complaining about, you know, um, how, how everything's gone to pot in the world of architecture and it's all the crappy architects who've got all the work and not the good ones. Like him who should, you know, clients should call him up, um, but he doesn't do any marketing and that kind of, that kind of thing. But I also think that, you know, so much of architecture is, has, has been kind of, the history of architecture is much a history of kind of virtual architecture as it has been of built architecture, whether that's publishing or drawing, equally important, or almost as important, we could say, as, as building, and always as difficult to, 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 to make buildings. You could see with younger generations that like, the internet has become a platform for incredible amounts of communication, like the sort of graphic like, onslaught of sort of Instagrammed drawings of architecture is insane, absolutely amazing on the one hand, kind of completely daunting on, an, on another, and also making connections which would never have existed before, like so, you know, thousands of people knowing each other, exploring sets of ideas, discarding them within weeks or months, which I think is really astounding in terms of a kind of cultural conversation that's happening through the act of drawing. Um, so, yeah, I think we have to, have to always be positive, as architects always, always have to be. I think there's, um, certainly speaking as a cyber evangelist from the 90s, um, <laughs> when it was uh, a, bit, a bit less complicated, I once said in front of Marcus Novak when I was an external examiner at SciArc in Los Angeles, um, oh, well, Marcus invented cyberspace, American cyberspace, and I invented the surreal English cyberspace. Um, but... Uh, the virtual, I think, is a great opportunity and these mixed and augmented realities, and as, as I mentioned in my little brief um, presentation, um, is, is vitally important because it's kind of performative, it's uh, locative, it's, it's, it's sharing different people's points of view and not just anthropocentric. So uh, I think there's a lot of scope there for architectural interventions that are a mixture of the real and the virtual and that real architecture made of real stuff that obeys certain architectural rules and semiotics, um, cosmic architectures that are virtual and augmented. And it's the playoff and the interaction between the two over time that's the future of architecture in the next few decades, I think. But are the schools ready for it? Um, well, the thing about other schools, uh, I think there's far too many schools of architecture in the UK and a lot of them aren't very good. Um, so I, I, would, uh, I would say the schools aren't necessarily 
up to it. I mean, if we come back to drawing, a lot of students can't draw anymore. And that's a problem, because I think drawing is crucial in the next sort of, the post-digital, as Sam might call it. Peter, is this a conversation you would recognise from those heady days in, in, at the AA? I think from those heady days at the AA, none of us ever had a, a, a trajectory planned out leading from, from theoretical work to, to, to practice. You know, I, I was very, very shocked at the AA a few years ago when, when I heard the word practice used as, a, as an insult. But I, I also heard the word building used as an insult. It's just a building. Which is, I think, I, I mean, it, it, it's a question of, of, of claiming territory. Um, I, but, 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 the, but this crisis is comparable, you know, or this opportunity is comparable. I think this opportunity is comparable, but I think almost everybody who graduates from an architecture school these days understands themselves as a visionary, and there isn't, there isn't the demand for that many visionaries. I mean, maybe one or two per generation, but not 5,000. <laughs> But we've created this world where we can all have visions. Well, I think we, um, we should all be able to interpret visions. I think that's important. I mean, we should all, all be able to, to, to read or to read architecture. Listen, there are already too many architects. We don't want even more critics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, to pick up on the discussion of language that has sort of been coming up. Uh, and a very interesting sort of trajectory from Peter's presentation, um, talking about a, a physical building as a piece of fiction and using the human face, maybe the most recognizable image linguistically that we can possibly recognize. And then in Sam's work, kind of using both linguistic tools that perhaps everyone know and then referential tools that perhaps only architects know. And then in Neil's drawings, where it becomes very, very abstract, but you refer again and again to the semiotic tools, literally then referring to, as far as I understand, how they semiotically then linguistically communicate to the audience. So I wanted to, it would be interesting to hear sort of how you think of this kind of, the way that an imagined world represented in fictional drawings or indeed in buildings kind of are constructed. If you, if you would think of them as a sort of, I mean, Sam, you mentioned literally a system, but if, if you would think of them as systems, you're aware of the codes you're using and aware of how your audience might read that code or that system. Well, I, I, really, I suppose it's a kind of artistic postmodernism that I employ, which is the, the reader completes the work in a way, and I leave clues there, but they may interpret them in different ways, and I find that enjoyable when they do. Um, I, I like saying to friends, you know, here's my latest drawing, what do you think it's of? Um, and sometimes the answers are quite extraordinary, and then if that's a better idea about... Uh, what the architecture might be uh, might be constituted from, then I'll nick it. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd say um, that it's fine for things to work on multiple levels. It's fine for them to be packed full of art historical, esoteric references, but also perform in a very kind of direct way to, to without those necessarily being known. In some ways, you know, it's a little bit like being in this room and. You know, again, to, to sort of conflate the world of drawing with the world of building or the world of sort of space. If you look around 
here you can imagine this all as some, some form of media. You know, we have this you know, decoration around the door, on the ceiling, all of which is kind of loaded with meaning. Most of which is, that, most of that meaning is kind of, kind of you know, we've lost the ability to, to read that, or most of us have at least. Yet it still works in some way. Um, but it also, is a, you know, rooms and space have conventions just as much as drawings do. And I think to understand how systems work and how you can intervene them, in them is something which can happen within graphic space, but equally happens within spatial space <laughs> as well. Um, you know, the way in which a room like this is organized, the way in which its circulation works and so on and so forth, is a language which works on us whether we like it or not, whether we think about it or not, or whether we're aware of it or not. And as an architect, it's the kind of, you know, it's one of the mediums that, that we use. And the ways in which we organize that is, transforms the way in which those places work and feel. I think we've reached a critical moment in the evening. While you two were speaking, lots of people left. I hope no one leaves while I speak. Um, come back. Yes, please come back. Um, I think the question of language is, is a question of whether the language is opaque or whether it's transparent, whether you're aware that you're speaking it or using it. I think I mean, the problem with, with the new media is that we, that we see so many images. You don't have time to... Uh, to to understand your reaction to it, all you can do is press the button like, don't like, which is the most dumb, naive way of, of taking on board an image, because you, you, you actually haven't, you haven't seen it. I think it's, it, it's all a question of time, and you, you, it, it takes time to actually think your way into an image, whether it's a drawing or, wh or whether it's a building. I think I, I, I see a real, a real linguistic problem that we're, we're becoming actually illiterate in terms of images and in, in terms of space. Well, well, some of us are on a, on a mass cultural level, we not. <laughs> well, are we becoming more literate because we see so much? I don't know. Like, you, could, you could possibly make an argument that we're so good at reading images, we only have to look at them for half a second. Yeah. We don't need to stare at a painting anymore. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we used to live or in, in South Kensington, around the corner from Francis Bacon, and who, who was often seen prowling around the streets. I once came, in, came upon him outside the vegetable shop. He was standing, staring at the pavement. People were all walking around him. They thought he was a madman. It was an inquisition, and he was, and he was seriously looking at that pavement. And he was, and he was in, in, a, in a very deep engagement with what he was looking at. And, and for me, that was a very lucky moment in my life. Just uh, one quick follow-up. <laughs> Where do you think this illiteracy um, comes from? Um, and do you mean um, like spatial illiteracy from the side of architecture of not knowing how to speak a language that people understands anymore? Or I think it's a question of time. We we don't have time to explore the iterative potential of of of, of what's in front of us. I think and everything, everything is, is actually incredibly loaded, that glass, that piece of paper, whatever. It's, but we, and we, don't, we don't consider them as valuable pieces of, pieces of input. Maybe this is the gripe of an older architect. Um, I think this might be the moment. Uh, Peter's very, very gloomy. 
Um, uh, no, I'm very optimistic, Neil. Uh, uh, this might be the moment to open up discussion uh, to, the, to the whole room. Uh, does anybody have uh, any questions? I'm not sure how to phrase my question. I was waiting for someone else to ask a question where I gathered my thoughts, but I'll go now. Um, I wanted to ask you about how you feel the role of the architect is shifting from perhaps a more individual, individualistic figure incepting a concept perhaps in solitude, as we've seen in history, and how that's shifting to a more collective um, figure because of perhaps the democratization of technologies or perhaps the general sharing of imagery. I mean, how do you think this kind of individual is turning into a collective? Is that killing creativity or perhaps bringing different avenues together to create something more organic? Is the question kind of... I have... Um, I've, I've battled with this one for about 30 years. Um, on the one level, I was brought up in the cult of, um, you know, the artistic genius, and I kind of like working on my own. Um, and over the years, this sort of eulogy to team working and community and all this sort of stuff, I've not seen any architecture, for me, that um, really shows that to be a, a, a great thing. Um, or even possible. Or even possible, yes. I think there's the, the problem is that it's... It's the always down to the lowest common denominator. That's my view. I know it's unpopular, but uh, that's my view. I don't know. I mean, there's examples of collectives um, which, which kind of have, have their moment. Oh, I mean, the collective is usually quite small. They're, you know, kind of, I don't know, 10, 15 people. How big was, how big was NATO? Like, maybe 20 people. And, yeah, small. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of muff early muff, early fat, assemble now. And I think those are important and exciting moments where a group of people come together as much kind of drawn together by competition as by collaboration or a kind of weird mixture of the two. And I think that can make incredible work that's not, that has a kind of, it has an authorship, it has a point of view in the same way that, you know, music made by a, a band can have a, a kind of worldview. Um, often they don't last forever um, because of the kind of inherent tensions within them. Um, but there's also, you know, the collective of the massive firm, which is obviously a kind of horrible vision. But there are examples of, you know, distributed ways of working together, like like Zero Zero's WikiHouse, for example, which are kind of experiments in using technology to allow multiple authors of 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 projects. But, but do you think it's necessary for a collaborative in order to function at all at these at these I agree these particular moments they all seem to have this history of everything for them to project an ideological position yeah there seems to be a correlation yeah which I, they, they kind of imagine worlds first and then make those worlds to, to whatever extent that they they can but it's also important to note that architecture is, is incredibly collaborative like even you know, the most straightforward architectural project involves like massive amounts of people and is in much a dialogue with the contractor as it is with the you know the critic who might come to see the building at, at, at a later date and in some senses it's it's formed through that kind of discussion I, I, 
I just wanted to clarify, I wasn't sort of dissing traditional architectural practice and using consultants, but the vision has to come from somewhere. Um, I thought the question was more couched in the, in the let's do a load of face painting and, um, you know, the sort of will all stop, let's design Barnsley. Um, we all do some face painting, knit some ponchos, and then he does what he wants to do anyway. So that's been hunting me for a bit, and since it somehow relates to the general topic, and uh, Sam, you were showing this... Um, uh, painting by Dali and uh, in connection to the OMA drawing. And I was wondering if it also with the whole discussion on uh, communication and language and in fictions and so on, like, do you think that there has ever been a surrealist architecture? Well, I wrote the book, Architecture and Surrealism. Um, uh, yes, I, it, in different ways, yes. I, and I think that the my basic thesis in the book is that we need to reassess the tactics and protocols of surrealism in the light of contemporary technology and develop new ways to practice. And some of those lessons might be more appropriate than the tired dogma of modernism or late modernism. So I think there's more potential in the future, um, but there have been examples in the past. I mean, I'd say architecture sort of struggles with surrealism because it, it exists in the world of the real, like with economists, um, spreadsheets, like all of these things which are part of the so-called real world or, you know, the kind of realism, uh, which I think Neil's suggestion about thinking about drawings, architectural drawings and fiction, we could also say the fiction of realities, but that it insists... America. America. Fiction. But it's Catholic a, Church. <laughs> of course, yeah. I'm quoting Saskia Sassen. The Catholic Church is one of the biggest fictions, etc. And, and everything, all of our institutions are fictions. Money is a fiction. I think, exa yeah, exactly. And the, so the Catholic Church has used architecture in order to make itself feel, to, to make itself appear more more real, because architecture mm -hmm. is made out of you know, real stuff. You can bang your head on it and stub yeah. your toe on it. And Empowering it's the architect in doing so. <laughs> <laughs> well, of lucky few. Mm -hmm. Lucky few geniuses. <laughs> Good operators. Uh, so, yeah, so that, that, that way, even the weirdest forms of architecture, as soon as, like, especially buildings which go out of their way to look weird, just feel very real and kind of fall flat in some senses because they have a different kind of reality to let's say a surrealist sculpture or surrealist painting or surrealist drawing so i think operating within within this fiction of the real is is a is a very weird quality that architecture has and, and sort of has to negotiate it's definitely possible for architecture to talk about that and talk to that and begin to reveal it. In fact, you could say some Baroque architecture kind of, as much as it tries to bomb, you know, bombastically convince you, it also shows you that it's a kind of trick at the same time. And so I, th I, mean, I think there's opportunities where architecture can both be real and reveal its own kind of fictional origins. Do, do you think it's a condition of good architecture that an architect has a political position? Definitely not. I mean, amazing, amazing architecture produced by terrible people. Okay, Very sorry, questionable politics. Saying, sorry, forgive me. I'm saying only that they have to believe in the politics. I'm not saying the politics have to be good politics. 
many of them may well have been I, fairly I'm agnostic. How, I'm saying how important is it to believe in something? I, I think it's, it's, it's believing in architecture more than believing in yeah, the, an ideology. The architecture is the ideology in a way. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that, that feels like the moment to wind up. <laughs> I never expected to get to that point. Um, listen, thank you all uh, very, very much. Um, and thank, the, thank you to the audience. I'm sorry there weren't more questions. I would like to thank all the speakers and also Neil. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.